Um, I think we all know that it's easier to do something you've never done before if someone goes ahead and does it for you and shows you how to do it. A leader, someone who knows what they're doing and can, and can encourage you that it's not as daunting as you think. Um, I've got two older brothers, one of whom is really into climbing. Um, many years ago, he'd, take, he'd sometimes take me to, out to the Peak District to Stanage Edge and we'd go climbing together. Now, I'm not very good at climbing. So I needed a lot of guidance and often he'd climb the route himself before, before me to show me where all the good handholds were and things like that. Um, I was still a bit scared in places, but it, it did make a lot of difference um, having someone go before you and do, it, and do it first. Without his example, I would have found it a lot harder. Um, and this passage in 1 Peter he encourages us along similar lines. Um, it commands us to love each other and speak the gospel to others, suffer for doing good, sticking our necks out, nailing our colours to the mast, that we believe him because Jesus has already done it for us. Um, let's just take stock of where we are in 1 Peter. Last week, we heard about how we can surrender to wholeness and what that means in the context of respecting human authority, slaves and masters, and marriage. And this passage zooms out to talk to the whole Christian community, as you can see that straight away, where it says, all of you. Now, the list of attributes in verse 8 and 9, I think sometimes they're easy to kind of skip over and think, yeah, we know what, we know what they mean. We do that. Um, but I'm going to take some time to think about each one. Um, be like-minded. The ESV, English Standard Version, translates this as unity of mind. Um, it's not a better translation. It's just different. Um, but hopefully it widens our understanding. This is a call to be united, not in everything, not in political views or sports team or how to make a cup of tea, but in the things that matter as a Christian community, like our view of what the gospel is, like our view of what we're trying to do here in Cholton and how we're going to do it and what we value as a church. Be sympathetic. This can be really hard sometimes. Um, I find it hard a lot of the time. Uh, it's not how I'm hardwired. It takes emotional energy to shadow the emotions of someone who, someone whose situation you're not in. Um, it takes energy, energy to be sad with someone who's sad when actually you've had quite a good day and you just want to say something to fix it and move on. Love one another. Love one another. Not just rub along with each other, but love one another. What does that look like in Christian community? It means praying for people, asking them what they want prayer for. It means serving each other when the need arises. We're called to love everyone in the church as we love our family. It's not a call to be best friends with everyone. No one has the capacity for that. But it does mean to be prepared to sacrificially love each other, even if you don't see eye to eye. And be compassionate. The ESV translates this as having a tender heart. 
Again, like sympathy, this takes energy. And we don't have to have deep relationships with everyone in the church. But those who you do know well, who are in your missional communities or your core groups, or of course in your own family, we need to be prepared to feel what others feel alongside them. And to some, it, it comes more naturally than others. Uh, be humble. Wow, this is a really hard one because it's the opposite of what is natural to our fallen nature. Our fallen nature, which is proud of the ideas we have, which puts our need before others. And the world around us teaches us selfishness too in its exhortations to get what you can as soon as you can. Speaking personally, one of the areas I find this really difficult is just in the house, life with small children, it's intense. And sometimes when Ruth asks me to do something and I've just spent 20 minutes clearing the kitchen, sweeping up all the food off the floor, and I'm like, really? I've just sat on the sofa. My need for relaxation at that point beats what needs doing, and it shouldn't. So there might be a nappy change, just a bit of a tidy up. Our lounge is, is mostly a bomb site most of the time. In these t- times, I just need to accept that Ruth is better at thinking ahead and thinking, okay, what needs doing now? She's just better. That's just how, how she is. Her strength, my weakness, and I've got to surrender to that. Um, Ruth, this is me apologising now for the times in the future <laughs> that, I, that I roll my eyes having said this in public. Um, verse 9, I think, is even harder. Um, Humans are born retaliators because we are sinful and selfish. When someone wrongs us, we are hardwired to fight back, to see them suffer. You don't have to teach that. Many of you will know we've got twin boys and they're two at the moment. When one of them steals a toy from the other and runs off with it, the other will naturally chase after him and try to get it back. We didn't have to teach them that. They just do it. And it's similar in adults. The desire for as much revenge as possible is pre-programmed. Pretty much everyone has it in them, even those who would claim to be good, upstanding people. I think I see this most clearly when a criminal is sentenced. And if it is seen to be a light sentence, people will say, justice wasn't done. They got off lightly. The family of the victims will come out and say, they didn't. They need, they need more time in prison. They'll express their anger. They'll want more revenge. This, seems, this is seen in a greater extent with countries who still have the death penalty. Like they've, they've, they've just got life in prison and they needed to go to the chair or whatever the phrase might be. But here, Peter is calling us to something radically different. He is calling us to do the opposite. He is calling us to repay evil with blessing. This goes against our own fallen nature. It goes against modern secular values, which normalizes a desire to see a wrongdoer suffer for what they've done. Let's just read verse 9 again. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you are called, so that you may inherit a blessing. Now, read out of context, this could be read to back up a works-based salvation. (coughs) 
that you need to repay evil with blessing to get blessing. Well, I think the use of the word inherit here helps us to understand that it's not a case. No one earns an inheritance. <coughs> you get it for free. Excuse me. Peter is teaching that those who have been called to return blessing for evil and insult have themselves inherited a blessing, the blessing of life in Christ. I guess you could say it fits with the phrase, pay it forward. (coughs) We have received utterly undeserved blessing. Therefore, we should give that to those who insult us. And boy, is our blessing totally undeserved, totally. We insult God every day by our sins. I insult God every day by my sin. I know that. And I think deep down, you all know that is true for you as well. So when you think about it like that, who are we? Who are we to repay insult with more insult? We probably won't like the person who has wronged us, but that's not what we're called to do. We're called to love them by blessing them. That could mean serving them, praying for them, or at the very least, not totally freezing them out or giving them the silent treatment. Sometimes we do see stories of people giving public forgiveness and blessing to those who have wronged them, and it's really powerful. (coughs) Um, There was one story in 2019 in America of the younger brother of someone who had been murdered. His name was Brant Jean. Um, and an off-duty police officer, who's the, who's the woman here, um, she got off the, the lift in her building, uh, one floor up, and she went to the flat that she thought was hers, that was right above hers, and she saw the door open, and she saw someone inside, and she thought he was an intruder, and she shot him and killed him. And <coughs> after she was sentenced to 10 years in prison, the younger brother of that of that poor man, (coughs) got up in the witness box and said this, and it's really powerful. I love you as a person, and I don't wish anything bad on you. If you are truly sorry, (coughs) I know I can speak for myself. I forgive you. And I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you too. Wow. Wow, that is so powerful. Um, as you can see, the police, police officer was white and uh, the victim was black. And in the prosecution, they highlighted that the, this police officer had shown racist views in messages to other to colleagues. Um, it, now, if that younger brother had not been a Christian, can you imagine how maybe the fury that might have, that might have come after just getting, te- her just getting 10 years in prison? We just have to think of the murder of George Floyd and others to, to see how, how different these reactions can be. <coughs> and, the psalm, um, and the psalm which Peter now quotes, which is Psalm 34, gives us plenty of other great reasons to follow these commands. Whoever would see good days. This, this really means whoever wants a fulfilling life. In verse 12, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and the ears are attentive to their prayer. What an amazing thought that God sees 
our righteousness and hears our prayer. But on the flip side, if we do evil, the face of the Lord is against us. Of course, we all sin because we are fallen and prideful and selfish, and sometimes it just comes naturally. But I think we should interpret do evil here as deliberate and unrepentant sin. So I'm just going to go on a bit of a sidebar. I'm going to be a bit in your face. Is there anything in your life, any habit or behavior, which deep down you know is sinful, but pridefully you try to just tell yourself it's okay? You need to be aware that the Lord's face is against you. To accept Jesus and the gospel fully is to accept it and bring it to bear on every area of your life. Not just those the areas you feel willing to change, because when we do that, we are worshipping a God of our own making and not the God of the Bible, who reveals himself in his word, the Bible. Now, if there is an area you need to address, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be really hard. And don't feel like you're doing it on your own. We, we can't do it alone. We need, God's, we need God's spirit to work in us. And we need others to help. Maybe this is something to address in your core groups or your missional communities with a, or with a trusted Christian friend. <coughs> and um, moving on, verses 13 to 15 are an encouragement. They encourage us that being eager to do good will not lead to harm. By the way, I should have said, um, if you could have the, the passage open, that would be all, if you've not already, because I'm aware we didn't, <laughs> we didn't read it. It's 1 Peter 3, verses 8 to 22. I keep saying verse, this, verse, this, verse, that. 1 Peter 3, verses 8 to 22 is where we are. Um, verses 13 to 15 are a real encouragement, I think. They encourage us that being eager to do good will not lead to harm. Now, I can hear you asking, hang on, isn't this what a lot of 1 Peter is about? Well, in verse 14, it slightly expands it to saying, even though you suffer for doing good, you are blessed. Now, the word suffer, I think, can include other things that don't include physical harm, like, like opposition and ridicule. But even when we do suffer these things, we are blessed. I find that such an encouragement. We are not to fear their threats. And what comes next is, I think, a bit unexpected. Verse 15, it says, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Peter is saying that an antidote to fearing opposition should be to revere Christ. To look to heaven and revere Jesus as Lord. Now, the next verse is quite well known. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for hope that is in you, for the hope that is in you. Um, I wonder if you've come across the following quote, which is attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. Always preach the gospel and when necessary, use words. Always preach the gospel and when necessary, use words. Now, um, there are two problems with this. Firstly, there's actually no record of him saying it. Secondly, it's impossible to preach the gospel and not use words. The thrust behind the quote is, is saying that you don't have to say the gospel. You can be a witness to it by your loving actions. And the problem with that is Christians don't have a monopoly on loving actions. It is a fact that Muslims, Buddhists, atheists, and many others of all beliefs can be 
and often are more loving than people who profess to be Christians, even Christian leaders. It is heartbreaking seeing so many stories of people in Christian ministry abusing their position of trust to abuse others in horrible ways. It's heartbreaking and really shameful. And although it sounds nice, the passage does not agree with it. Verse 15 again, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. It's not talking about behaviour, it's talking about a conversation. I don't think anyone can deny that the gospel needs to be told. The gospel is not loving acts, it is not charity. These things can flow from it, of course, but the gospel is the truth that Jesus died for our sins to take the punishment we deserve so that we can be right before God. It is a message that cannot be deduced from seeing someone carry out acts of kindness. But we are to do it with gentleness and respect. People will not be drawn to Christ if we belittle or insult their views. It just won't happen. That'll drive them further away. In the way we preach the gospel to people, we need to be modelling the love for others that we are commanded to have. And loving others does not mean forcing our beliefs on them. It simply means here we present them honestly with why we have the hope that we have. So there are two implications for us from this, I think. The question we should ask ourselves is, could you or could we explain the gospel to someone? Although you hear it, it it might be that you've never actually told someone the gospel. If that's you, I think a great place to learn about this would be, or to practice this would be in missional communities or with other trusted Christian friends. Um, And then secondly, can I encourage you to think now of the people in your life who don't know Christ, who know you're a Christian, and where, are, where the opportunities are to explain with gentleness and respect the reason for our hope. And we can pray for those opportunities. And although this passage disagrees with the bogus Assisi quote, um, it doesn't totally throw deeds and behaviour out the window. Verse 16 says, keeping a clear conscious conscience so that those who speak maliciously against you, your good behaviour in Christ, may be ashamed of their slander. In other words, don't be a hypocrite. Don't let your life tell a different story to your words. We all know the phrase, actions speak louder than words. It's not always true. Words can be extremely powerful, as we've just discussed. But here, this is kind of what we're talking about. Some people are so hostile towards faith in Jesus, it seems that that no words will convince them otherwise. No elaborate apologetics, however well-founded and presented, will change their minds. They seem deaf to our words. Our words to them are proof that we're brainwashed bigots. Um, The older brother who I mentioned before falls into this category. He used to be a Christian, so he knows the gospel. He knows all the arguments. All I can really do now is pray for him. And love him. But actions. Actions are different. If a person in our lives. Hostile to the gospel. Knows that we believe. Insults us for it. You can be pretty sure that they'll not care about our words. But they'll be watching our actions. Keen to be able to call us. Bigoted hypocrites. 
But if they see that we care for the poor, not just with our mouths, but with our wallets, if they see that lo- the love we profess for others can be seen in, pl- in plain daylight, how we treat the needy, the lonely, and the outcast people in our society, if they see us loving someone who's wronged us, it can be incredibly disarming. Suddenly, the stereotypes they have assigned to us can be knocked down. And as Peter says, they'll be ashamed of their slander. (coughs) Can I get personal here? It's another bit of a sidebar, but have you ever been the person we're talking about? Have you ever judged someone on the basis of a first impression or political views or whatever else that makes them different to us and then been proved totally wrong by their actions? I have. And yeah, the feeling of shame is real. And, and that's the kind of reactions our lives should create. It shouldn't be the motivation. The motivation for living this life is to love and embrace our new identity in Jesus and to leave our old self behind. But nevertheless, it's a missional side effect. And that's a good type of side effect, if you ask me. So actions can be very powerful, but words are still important. And they can work together um, to proclaim the gospel in a powerful and credible and honest way. If we, love live, if we live loving lives but do not speak the gospel, people will just think we're nice people. They'll say, they'll think, good for you, but then think to themselves, not for me. And there will be nothing further for them to engage with, no good news that might apply to them. On the other hand, if we preach the gospel but our actions don't match up with it, we are hypocrites. And we also being, risk being called bigots. This perception actually drives people further away from um, accepting the gospel and cements in place their pre-existing suspicions about people who they would classify as religious. So the bogus Assisi quote does contain a tiny bit of truth. It's really, really important that we live out the gospel as well as tell it. How you do that will either draw someone closer or will push them away. I don't think there's a kind of middle ground where you can keep someone in the same place. If they know you're a Christian, they're watching your your actions, it's going to do one of two things. Now, we are wanderers on this earth and we should expect opposition. But we know because of this passage, there will be victory in the end. I I want you to imagine that you are a dedicated sports fan on your way to watching your team play away from home. And I've got some away fans here. Um, but imagine that you also knew... So, sorry, you know that if you're, if you're vocal about who you support at that football game, you, you're going to get opposition. You're going to get people shouting back. But, but imagine if, if you knew, if you, if, 